This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss Parkinson Canada's A Canvas of Hope event with President and CEO Karen Lee and National Chair of Women for Parkinson's Deb Voorhees. We'll learn about lifestyle habits to prevent breast cancer with researcher Dr. Rachel Murphy. We'll discover how technology can help us age gracefully with Professor Josephine McMurray. And lastly, we'll find out how 75% of vision loss is preventable with optometrist Dr. Clark Tardif. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Speech production is a complex neural phenomenon that has left researchers explaining it tongue-tied. Separating out the complex web of neural regions controlling precise muscle movements in the mouth, jaw, and tongue with the regions processing the auditory feedback of hearing your own voice is a complex problem and one that has to be overcome for the next generation of speech-producing prosthesis. Now, a team of researchers from New York University have made key discoveries that help untangle that web and are using it to build vocal reconstruction technology that recreates the voices of patients who've lost their ability to speak. The team created and used complex neural networks to recreate speech from brain recordings and then use that recreation to analyze the processes that drive human speech. They detailed their new findings in a new paper published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. There's evidence that some form of conscious experience is present by birth and perhaps even late pregnancy. An international team of researchers from Trinity College Dublin and colleagues in Australia, Germany, and the USA have found. The findings, recently published in the peer-reviewed journal Trends in Cognitive Science, have important clinical, ethical, and potentially legal implications, according to the authors. In the study entitled Consciousness in the Cradle on the Emergence of Infant Experience, The researchers argue that by birth, the infant's developing brain is capable of conscious experiences that can make a lasting imprint on their developing sense of self and understanding of their environment. A new study from the University of Cambridge indicates a strong connection between early parent-child relationships and the likelihood that children will grow up to display socially desirable characteristics like kindness and empathy. Using data from 10,000 people in the UK, Researchers found that children who have a warm and loving bond with their parents at age three are not only less prone to mental health difficulties, but display heightened pro-sociality by the time they reach adolescence. This refers to socially desirable behaviors such as kindness, empathy, helpfulness, generosity, and volunteering. Conversely, children whose early relationships with their parents were difficult or abusive were less likely to develop pro-social habits. The researchers argue that this strengthens the case for developing targeted policies to support young families within which it may be difficult to establish close early parent-child relationships. 
Alexander Fleming, who famously discovered penicillin, once said, never to neglect an extraordinary appearance or happening. And the path of science often leads to just that. New UNLV research is turning the page in our understanding of harmful bacteria and how they turn on certain genes causing disease in our bodies. A team of interdisciplinary scientists, led by professor and microbiologist Helen Wing, focuses on Shigella, a lethal bacteria pathogen that causes abdominal cramping, fever, and diarrhea. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that Shigella leads to 600,000 deaths globally each year. Shigella contains a major switch protein, VIRB, which triggers the bacterium to cause a disease in humans. VIRB does this by binding to Shigella's DNA, activating the disease. The researchers showed that it's possible that interfering with VRIB's binding process can prevent Shigella from making us sick. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Today, 30 Canadians will be told that they have Parkinson's for the first time. This happens every day, and within 10 years, that number will increase to 50 people a day. They'll join more than 100,000 Canadians who live with Parkinson's. The reality for people who face a Parkinson's diagnosis is that many aspects of their lives will be disrupted, including relationships, work, sleep, activity, and mental health. Parkinson Canada is the national organization and unifying voice representing all Canadians impacted by Parkinson's disease. They're driven by a shared belief that a rich and vibrant life is still possible for those with Parkinson's. To find out more about the resources they offer, the research projects they fund, and the causes they advocate for, please visit parkinson.ca. For the last two years, Karen Lee has led Parkinson Canada as the president and CEO. Here, she's leading Parkinson Canada's transformational change in impacting more people living with Parkinson's while building partnerships and collaboration to drive research innovation to ultimately help people living with Parkinson's to thrive. Deb Voorhees is a resident of Toronto, is a partner at an executive recruitment firm agency and a philanthropist who strives to build high-impact teams. She's been involved with Parkinson Canada since 2009 and is actively engaged with Women for Parkinson's. Welcome both of you to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So for those who don't know, what is Parkinson's disease? So Parkinson's disease is a neurological condition. Many people equate Parkinson's to somebody who's older. Um, We think about the quintessential tremor, but um, it's more than that. There is a lot of underlying symptoms that people don't see. Um, People um, who are diagnosed um, get, you know, usually sleep disorders, difficulty swallowing, constipation, and it really affects their quality of life. And one of the things about Parkinson's disease is it impacts everybody very differently. There's 100,000 people in Canada who live with this disease, and we still do not have a cure. And we also do not have any what we call disease-modifying therapies. So we have a lot of treatments to stop the tremors. However, we don't have any medication right now that can slow or stop the disease progression. Okay, so let's talk a bit about Parkinson's Canada. What do you do for the people that are living with Parkinson's? So... What we really are looking at is empowering and inspiring people to thrive. 
In the meantime, we continue to fund research, which is really critical, obviously, because it provides that hope. But we also want to provide support and resources for the 100,000 people who live with Parkinson's and also their family members. So we go and provide webinars, uh, support groups. We have many resources on the various topics that are very meaningful to them, from relationships um, to cognition to how do I actually function at work. But one of the big things is that we also do advocacy. I was just up at uh, Parliament Hill uh, yesterday advocating and building awareness for Parkinson's disease, but more importantly, all the issues that are really important to people living with Parkinson's. They want to know that they still can contribute, and they can, to society, and we need to ensure that we support them to allow them to do that. And a big thing we're saying right now at Parkinson Canada is that not only are we trying to empower, inspire people to thrive, we want to show them that it's still possible. What were some of the uh, issues that you were advocating for in Parliament Hill? So one of the big things is to make sure that they make the Canadian Disability Tax Credit really specific. Right now, it's so vague. A lot of people have a lot of difficulties applying for it. They don't know if they're actually eligible. At the same time, they're not clear um, what it is. So we need the framework to be more precise from the governments. Another piece is medication. Currently, right now, as I said, there are symptomatic treatments out there. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in discussions at Parliament and with Health Canada, there are a few drugs that are being pulled off the market. Really important drugs that people need to live their everyday life. So we're really working to ensure that they can remain in Canada. At the same time, we know it's not a necessarily a federal issue up in Parliament Hill, but access to care is huge. It's not only about seeing your uh, movement disorder specialist, neurologist. There's a whole care team that really surrounds people living with Parkinson's, um, from physiotherapists to speech therapists to a social worker. So how do we ensure people are connected and getting that access to care regardless of where you live in Canada? Right. I mean, access to care for Canadians in general is a challenge. I would imagine for somebody suffering with Parkinson's, it would be even more complicated because of all the needs and, and, and how difficult it is presumably even outside of urban centers, to deal with those issues. It is a huge issue. As we said, I think COVID has amplified all these issues, Um, but specifically in Parkinson's, the needs are different for every person. However, it's not just your brain that's impacted. Your whole body's impacted. And so um, one of the things we're doing at Parkinson Canada, we just launched um, a tool called CareFinder. Because mm-hmm. we heard all the time that people were taking hours looking for a physiotherapist, right. a yoga program. And so um, that tool just launched online. You can type in your postal code and then it will show you all the available resources within your community. We're still populating it. So it's the first iteration, but really welcome people to have a look and see. And um, over time, we want to build with the community how we input that data. But that's not the only thing you're doing. You have an event coming up called Canvas of Hope. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that and like who's presenting it and how it all fleshes out? Yeah, so maybe um, I'll ask my partner here, uh, Deb Warhays, who's been really the leader in this and has been a great partner to Parkinson Canada. Thanks, Karen. So Canvas of Hope is presented by Women for Parkinson's, which is a new initiative with Parkinson Canada. It's our second year. Last year we launched in Toronto and Vancouver. And the idea is to bring a dynamic group of women together who have connections, have a voice, and can help to raise money and raise awareness for Parkinson's disease. Uh, My own involvement is that my youngest brother was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's about 15 years ago, and I kind of joke that 
uh, we're like Michael J. Fox, but without the money, right? <laughs> and so I've been very passionate about it. And Canvas of Hope on November 15th from 4 to 7 p.m. is taking place at the Bayview Golf and Country Club. We're presenting artwork of ma- multimedia, just like your studio here, multimedia st- uh, artwork, photography, painting, sculpture, live music from talented artists who have Parkinson's as well as a community of women artists in Toronto who are donating their time and uh, money to us. So it's going to be a fun evening. Uh, we've got uh, lots of great food. We've got good conversation. Uh, we're going to have a silent auction. And the other thing that we're doing too is a panel discussion that Karen is leading with two amazing researchers from Toronto. So maybe I'll turn that back to you, Karen, to uh, speak about about that a bit. Yeah, so the event obviously is so important to uh, bring people together to learn about Parkinson's, but we thought it's a great opportunity to highlight two women researchers and clinicians here in Toronto um, who are doing not only care um, in terms of people living with Parkinson's, but also trying to help them tor- towards the cure. So um, we'll have an engaging discussion about that. I don't want to get into give away too much. I really encourage right. people to come out for it instead. But um, one of them is a leading clinician, um, clinical trialist, uh, which is really critical if we want to bring new drugs um, onto market here in Canada and worldwide. For sure. Deb, what inspired the creation of Women for Parkinson's Initiative? Great question, Jamie. I'm very passionate about women and their issues, and uh, I was approached by Karen early in her uh, tenure as the president of Parkinson Canada to come in and help them develop um, a national initiative. And through conversations, it morphed into how do we bring in the kind of communities that we each have with women to the Parkinson conversation. Because we see over and over again women supporting women, not just financially, but also in caregiving and in fundraising, as we're seeing. So that was the impetus for me for that. Right. So you piqued my interest in talking about the event uh, with the art exhibition. So I presume the silent auction is part of all this. So the artwork will be for sale. Yes, some of the artwork will be for sale. We've got it in the silent auction and the artists have been very generous about that. We will have a, a program to promote the artist so that not only will you see it on display at the event, you can then take the program away. And if you want to contact the artist later, you can. And really the exceptional creativity is what we're showcasing here because the group of artists uh, range from uh, young men, young women to older artists who are doing photography, lots of paintings. So one of my friends way back when from junior high has Parkinson and he's an artist. I'm wondering if he's one of the artists. Do you know who the artists are at the event? Uh, if you mention his name, I... Steve Eisman. Is he oh. One? Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and so that's basically how I came to know about Parkinson Canada. He reached out to me because he's done some separate initiatives. Great. And we've, we've had Steve on the show, but I also know that he's an artist and, and quite a good one. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that Steve's going to be there. That's great. His work is being presented and as well, he's going to speak about how doing the art has really affected his 
dealing with Parkinson's and, and influenced how he's living with it. He's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he talked about, he did that trip uh, where he climbed, was it Mount Everest? Oh, he biked across the country last right. year. Yeah, no, I know. Yes. Uh, um, no, we had him yeah. on the show before yeah. before he did yeah. the, the bike tour. So yeah. it's he's kind of amazing, uh, very inspirational. So if we've piqued uh, listeners' interest in the event, how can they get tickets? What should they do? They should reach out to donate at parkinson.ca, donate at parkinson.ca, and we will get them all the information that they need. It is, again, November 15th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Bayview Golf and Country Club in Thornhill. Lots of parking, a very accessible location. So if you have mobility issues, there's no, no problem there. So I'm intrigued about coming to the event, but who are you expecting to come? Who's the ideal candidate and who might be interested in coming? The ideal candidate is many people. So we are looking for, uh, we expect to have an audience of people who have Parkinson's or a connection to Parkinson's, lots of family members. As Karen referenced, Parkinson's is really a family situation. Uh, It's the mobility issues as well as the cognitive issues make that challenging. But we're looking for allies, too. You know, you may not have Parkinson's in your family. You may know someone like you know Steve Eisenman in your community that has it. So you do have a connection. The other thing is people who love art. If you love art, come and see some amazing artwork. It doesn't matter that the artists, um, you know, whether they have Parkinson's or not, they're very talented artists and they're on their own right. Um, And if you like good food, we're going to have a wonderful selection of canapes and cocktails. And it's an easy thing to fit into your schedule, 4 to 7 p.m. We're not um, asking you to come for a long sit-down dinner with some boring speeches. We're going to have some very intriguing and inspiring uh, speeches. What I would say is that the feedback from our two events last year from the... um, amazing group of women that supported us was that the educational component as well as the social component was important. They really loved hearing more about the the condition and more about how they could help uh, because we are hearing more and more uh, Parkinson's in the community. Okay, time for one last question. And that is maybe, Karen, you can help flush out where both of you actually, where the funds are going. So the money that's being raised, what are you doing with it? So the the important funds that are being raised really at the end of the day are to support people living with Parkinson's from the areas of advocacy we just spoke about to the programming that we're providing nationally, such as the CareFinder tool, as well as the research. Um, We invest almost close to two million into research annually. And that's not only about funding the lab work we might think about, but also the next generation of researchers and clinicians who are going to be so critical in leading the way and finding that cure. Fantastic. So if, again, if people are interested in supporting the charity or coming to the event, where should they go? Well, if they want to come to the event, it's donate at parkinson.ca or come to parkinson.ca. And there's a wealth of information there from donation to finding the events and the other programs we spoke about earlier. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Thank Thank you. you. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Today, 30 Canadians will be told that they have Parkinson's for the first time. This happens every day, and within 10 years, that number will increase to 50 people a day. They'll join more than 100,000 Canadians who live with Parkinson's, 
The reality for people who face a Parkinson's diagnosis is that many aspects of their lives will be disrupted, including relationships, work, sleep, activity, and mental health. Parkinson Canada is the national organization and unifying voice representing all Canadians impacted by Parkinson's disease. They're driven by a shared belief that a rich and vibrant life is still possible for those with Parkinson's. To find out more about the resources they offer, the research projects they fund, and the causes they advocate for, please visit parkinson.ca. OMTO is back. OMTO is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique theme classes, nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers for all. A portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to the Scott Mission. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date! Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Rachel Murphy is a senior scientist at the BC Cancer and associate professor at the School of Population and Public Health, University of British Columbia. She received her PhD in nutrition and metabolism from the University of Alberta and completed a postdoctorate in the Laboratory of Epidemiology and Population Sciences at the National Institute on Aging in the United States. Her research program aims to advance the understanding of relationships between diet, nutrition, and chronic disease, particularly cancer. Her research primarily uses population-based approach and innovative methodologies to study metabolic pathways underlying relationships. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for the invitation. I'm great. So today we're going to explore uh, the correlation between lifestyle habits uh, and breast cancer prevention. Can women really make lifestyle choices that will meaningfully prevent the risk of breast cancer? Yes, absolutely. A, a healthy lifestyle is a really important part of reducing the risk of cancers, including breast cancer. Um, and when I say a healthy lifestyle, that means things like being physically active, consuming little, if any, alcohol, eating a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, high in fiber, um, and generally low in things like saturated fat, um, as well as maintaining a healthy body weight. So in doing those things, you probably can't attach a number to it, but how significantly are you reducing the risk in doing so? So healthy lifestyles can prevent up to uh, around 40 to 50% of cancers. Oh, wow. So it, it is actually a, a substantial proportion of cancers that can be also attributed to um, various risk factors. So there's been um, a Canadian study that has done exactly that. So when you said it's difficult to assign numbers, but there there has been an effort to do that to try and help provide some context to that. So there's a study called COMPARE, um, and they use data from across Canada to calculate what's called the, the population attributable risk for cancers. 
So that means it's the proportion of cancers that occur that are due to a given risk factor. So for things like breast cancer, there's about 3, 3% of breast cancers are due to alcohol consumption. Around 4% are due to an unhealthy BMI. Um, we know around 6% for low fruit, et cetera. So you can actually start to parse out the, the relative contribution of these behaviors. Low fruit. Sorry, you've, you've piqued my interest because that was the biggest percentage that you mentioned. What's the correlation between low fruit intake and, and breast cancer? Yeah, so I, I should say that it's, it's not necessarily the biggest. It's the biggest of the ones that I mentioned, but right. things like physical activity, for example, um, or physical inactivity, so being sedentary, um, is also a fairly large contribution as well. But for things like low fruit, we know that fruit is rich in antioxidants. It tends to also be um, higher in fiber, for example. So there's a lot of different elements um, and, and different nutrients within fruits that we know are important for reducing the risk of cancer, including breast cancer. Okay. So specifically, what types of decisions would you recommend to somebody who is looking to make lifestyle decisions to avoid breast cancer? Maybe you've got a family history of it or they're prone to it for, for other reasons. What would you recommend? So there are some um, recommendations out there that I would encourage people to look at if this is an area they're interested in. Um, so the World Cancer Research Foundation International, or it's much easier to, to Google a WCRFI, um, as well the Canadian Cancer Society, they have really helpful resources on making healthy choices to reduce one's risk of breast cancer as well as other cancers. So this includes guidance around minimizing alcohol consumption, quitting smoking if you do smoke, consuming a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, maintaining a healthy body weight, limiting sitting, and that kind of thing. That makes a lot of sense. And I presume you're on the cutting edge of, of, of research. Is there anything new that isn't you know publicly well-known, or is there anything that you're working on that you can share with us regarding breast cancer and, and lifestyle choices? Sure. So I think one, I would highlight that I think often, you know, it's referred to as lifestyle choices. I hear you saying that. I, I also say that sometimes as well. I do think it's important that, um, you know, that the this largely places the onus on the individual to make a healthy lifestyle change, like being more active, eating more fruits and vegetables. But I do think it's important to recognize it's not that simple, that, you know, individuals might not have access to fruits and vegetables. Or they're, uh, if they live in rural remote areas, it can be quite expensive. So I do want to just like that I think it's important to also recognize that the broader influence of the environment, for example, of, you know, we need to make the healthy choice the easy choice. So I'm just wary that, you know, that we don't place too much onus on the individual to make these changes, that we really need to look at the broader environment so that these are actually choices that we are able to make. From a policy perspective, I agree with you, but you know most of my listeners are individuals, so I'm I'm trying to come up with some things that they can do on their own. In addition, obviously, to perhaps writing to their MP and suggesting you know that they they make fruits and vegetables more accessible and and more convenient, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that you know plays um, you know very well on you know the advocacy side of things. We do need to look to city planners and policymakers so that we have walkable neighborhoods, we have access to affordable foods affordable leisure spaces, for example. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I will circle back to your question around kind of the recent research and what does that tell us? You know, I think right now the recommendations really tend to be kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. So it's, you know, if you have an average risk of cancer, these are the kind of foods that you should be doing, you know, limit your sitting. And I think that 
is important messaging, but I also think sometimes it doesn't resonate with an individual. So kind of what you mentioned around, you know, we have individual people listening. And, and a lot of times people want things that are much more specific about than those recommendations. You know, more of an individualistic approach versus this one size fits all. And I think that's really where a lot of the research is moving. And I think that's what I find really interesting is thinking more about this personalized approach to prevention uh, of breast cancer and, and other cancers as well. And, you know, we are starting to see a lot more evidence that are applying new technologies, so things like genomic sequencing, metabolomics, the gut microbiome, to really help understand, um, you know, why people respond differently to a given diet or a given intervention and understanding really how do we start personalizing recommendations to reduce the risk of, of breast cancer. So you, you, you threw out there the, microbi- the gut microbiome, which you know, we've covered on the show in other contexts. So, so what is the connection between the gut microbiome and, and the development of breast cancer? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think that gut microbiome is one of those areas that, you know, is just inherently fascinating. I think it plays such a big role in things that we we really had no idea about, you know, several years ago. Um, And right now, I think with respect to the development of breast cancer, it's it's too soon to tell, Um, but there are some really kind of hints that we can glean from other studies. So there have been some studies that have looked at prolonged antibiotic use, for example, which we know alters the composition of the gut and that may um, lead to an increased risk of developing breast cancer. There's also been some studies that have identified specific bacteria in the gut, which can help to regulate estrogen levels in the body, um, including estrogen, which may act distally at the breast uh, breast tissue. Um, And the reason that this is interesting is because estrogen is a known cause of the most common type of breast cancer. So it's thought that the gut microbiome may actually play a role in breast cancer development, specifically through this control of estrogen. Um, That said, there's only really been a handful of small studies in women, um, although my group is in the midst of conducting a study to really answer just this question. So we're recruiting women with and without breast cancer and asking women to provide information on their health and diet, as well as provide blood and stool specimens so that we can measure bacteria in their gut as well as circulating markers in their blood. So we think that we might see differences in the number and type of bacteria in women who have breast cancer, and then particularly in the number and type of bacteria that control estrogen pathways. So this might provide some evidence of the involvement of the gut. Interesting. So most of our conversation has been about, you know, lifestyle choices in the context of preventing cancer. Do these lifestyle choices impact somebody who unfortunately does develop cancer? Yes, absolutely. So the recommendations for cancer prevention, so things like a healthy diet and physical activity, maintaining a healthy body weight are also recommended after a person receives a breast cancer diagnosis. Um, There is quite convincing evidence that a healthy body weight and greater physical activity can improve outcomes like survival as well as quality of life after diagnosis with breast cancer. One last question, and that is, we haven't touched upon it, but I understand it's it's still relevant. What is the role of of testing or screening with respect to breast cancer? What, What are recommendations now? Right, so testing and screening um, are, are very important for secondary prevention, so that is identifying cancer early when it's more likely to respond to treatment. Um, and for women with a family history of breast cancer, that may mean engaging in screening for inherited mutations and in genes that can increase the risk of breast cancer. That doesn't mean that everybody who has that mutation will develop breast cancer, but they do have a higher risk. 
Mm-hmm. Um, for women who are in an average risk uh, and between the ages of 50 and 74, there is um, recommendations to engage in mammographic screening um, to really help identify breast cancer early when it's more amenable to treatment. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. That was fun. That was Dr. Rachel Murphy. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss technology for aging well in the home on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Josephine McMurray, PhD, MBA, MRT, is Associate Scientific Director at AgeWell, which is Canada's technology and aging network. She's an associate professor at the Lazaridis School of Business and Economics, Wilfrid Laurier University, in the Business Technology Management Program, and adjunct associate professor at the Arthur Labatt Family School of Nursing at Western University. Her research is focused on issues at the intersection of healthcare, technology, and management, and her current grants explore the implementation of geolocation technologies in long-term care, employers' perspectives on the use of technology to accommodate employees diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment and dementia, and how older adults and smart technologies co-adapt to enable living longer independently. Welcome to the show, Josephine. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And and thanks. That sounds like a really long introduction, but thank you for inviting me to speak about our work. I know. It's super impressive. Now you have to live up to it, huh? <laughs> That's true. So I've made the decision. I'm 57, and I've decided that come hell or high water, I'm going to try and age in home. That's just the decision I'm making. And so I'm trying to live my life towards that goal. And I'm hoping that you can help explain today whether there's technologies that exist or are emerging, which might help Canadians who've made the same sort of decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And and I'm sure we'll get into some of those technologies, um, you know, in, in more detail. But just, just to say, you are not alone, Jamie. And, and in fact, 
you know, a Canadian Medical Association survey has told us that, in fact, 96% of Canadians want to do exactly what you want to do, which is to live at home and live as independently as you possibly can without going into institutional care. And, you know, as Canadians, we're not slow to learn. Uh, COVID exposed some serious shortcomings in long-term care. So, you know, being drawn to this idea of living in a place that's familiar to us Um, One where we feel more mentally and emotionally healthy, where we have control over what we do in a day, that's a really common feeling for Canadians. Uh, So, yes, there are many technologies, some of which are commercially available and others that we're working on that will help older adults stay longer in their homes as they get more functionally challenged, which tends to happen as, as we get older. So let's take a step back. You are the scientific director at AgeWell. What is AgeWell? Yeah, so I am the Associate Scientific Director. The the, uh, Scientific Director officially is uh, Dr. Alex uh, Mialidis at the University of Toronto, but I am his uh, sidekick. So what we do is we look at the integrity of the work that is coming through and that we are doing as a scientific network. But AgeWell is a a very large network. It uh, was funded by the uh, federal government about nine years ago, And we were charged with going out and bringing together researchers, industry, government, older adults, caregivers, all of the people who are stakeholders in trying to help people to do what you want to do, which is to stay at home and be more independent. And so we've been working over that period of years to bring all of these people together, something that through research we've we've learned is really important to making sure that we get outcomes that are relevant to you as a user when you want to stay at home independently. So, um, yeah, and and to be absolutely honest, Jamie, I think this network is a bit of a hidden gem in Canada. Um, We are constantly fielding international inquiries uh, for speaking engagements to tell the story of how we've built this collaboration between all of these groups to help improve the lives of older Canadians. Great. And what is AgeTech? So AgeTech is actually any technology or tech-enabled product that is designed explicitly to help people to stay at home and to be more independent. So it could involve things like remote therapies, systems that connect people so that they're more socially engaged. It could be smart home sensors, virtual exercise systems, reminder apps. So it's a really long list, but it helps us to become more focused on this this group of people that are rapidly approaching as a cohort. And and the baby boomers are kind of our last group coming into this that are making us a a super-aged country. So by 2035, um, more than one in four Canadians are going to be older than 65 years of age. So this idea that we have technology that is purpose-built to help them to stay more independent and, and, you know, as a side result of that, of being less dependent on sort of government services is really important. Okay, so now that we've set the table, let's let let people eat. What are some of the technologies that are coming through that exist right now on the market that can enable Canadians to live longer in the home? Okay, so many Canadians are already using these technologies. And so, you know, the very simple technologies, just like a smartphone or Alexa or a Nest that's controlling temperature for them, or like 
I have, you know, outdoor landscape lights, landscape lights that I can turn on and off. So those technologies are all there. And while they might not be purpose-built for older adults, they are certainly helping us all manage our time and to feel more secure in our homes. So obviously you feel more secure in your home, you're going to, uh, to stay there longer. Some of the age tech devices, and these are things that are really built for some of the conditions that tend to um, appear as we get older, are things like this uh, technologies that, that we are supporting through AgeWell. We have a smart glove that was uh, designed by a startup called Steadywear here in Toronto. And this glove actually stabilizes wrist joints and your forearm so that people who experience tremors or diseases like Parkinson's can actually do things independently, can feed themselves more easily, can perform their normal daily activities more easily because they have fine motor control back. And people who have Parkinson's have said to us, this is a game changer for us. It's really a small technology, but it's a technology which is really important in, in their lives. Another one is uh, an app that we support called MaxMinder, and this was developed by a team in Ottawa. It's a personal aid that reminds people to take their medications, to go to appointments, etc. And it's really purpose-built for older adults who experience mild cognitive impairment. And that is a not uncommon sequelae as, as we age, is to have some cognitive impairment. So this idea that they and the people who care for them are able to coordinate and then um, schedule these activities can be really helpful, first of all, again, to give people back control and to ensure that they are able to live again more independently. So that's like a couple of the kind of purpose-built technologies for age tech. I've got a number of others that I can speak to, but that's the kind of thing that we are supporting for age tech in particular. Really fascinating. Is there anything that's sort of not quite at market yet that you've, you've seen through your position that is you know, imminently coming that you think might, might be helpful or perhaps even a game changer? Yeah, man, for sure. We're seeing a lot of stuff come through. And it, not unsurprisingly, smart technologies or technologies that have AI purpose built into them is clearly kind of the, the game changer that's happening. So this AI helps uh, folks to be able to uh, to sort of interact and, and sort of co-adapt with the technology so that the technology learns their habits and it can detect if something is out of the norm or, you know, possibly even, you know, help to prevent things like falls or other events from actually happening. So I think that, that pipeline of products that have AI built into them is really important. I just reviewed a number of, of our awards that we give out to emerging entre entrepreneurs, and AI is definitely showing up in all of these. And so it might show up as, for instance, in a virtual exercise system, so where the system is actually responding to how that person is responding to the exercise program. It might be, for instance, we've got wearables that have a smart insole with real-time location monitoring that is built into it for people who have dementia and who might be, for instance, prone to wandering away from places that are safe for them. And I think back to those homes where we want to stay, um, it's very clear that this idea of using AI and sensors in our home to, so that our homes are smarter and more 
supportive of us is really important. And we actually have an innovation hub in Ottawa called SAM3 in collaboration with the Breuer Institute. And they're testing the sensors that look at risky situations, for instance, in the kitchen that will signal to people to take corrective actions and turn off snow, stoves, close fridge doors, etc. So those technologies are all coming. And, you know, as we're making decisions about what we are doing, we have to think about what the technologies are going to be in two, three, four, five years. There will be exponential growth in their smartness and their ability to help us to stay more independent. We have time for one last question very quickly. You just finished up Age Tech Innovation Week. Uh, What was that and what did it feature? Oh, man, this is an amazing event. It's our annual conference, and uh, this year it attracted over 600 people from across Canada and the world, all who are really committed to this idea of enhancing lives through technology. So we had about 90 speakers, the latest research and innovation that our network of people are doing. We have a really big cohort of older adults and care partners who are intimately involved with co-designing these technologies and making sure that they are relevant in real life. So yeah, we had lots of exhibits and demos and so a real buzz around the this, this sense of possibility and you know, building new technologies for, for folks as we move forward. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Josephine McMurray. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss preventable vision loss on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Today, 30 Canadians will be told that they have Parkinson's for the first time. This happens every day, and within 10 years, that number will increase to 50 people a day. They'll join more than 100,000 Canadians who live with Parkinson's. The reality for people who face a Parkinson's diagnosis is that many aspects of their lives will be disrupted, including relationships, work, sleep, activity, and mental health. Parkinson Canada is the national organization and unifying voice representing all Canadians impacted by Parkinson's disease. They're driven by a shared belief that a rich and vibrant life is still possible for those with Parkinson's. To find out more about the resources they offer, the research projects they fund, and the causes they advocate for, please visit parkinson.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
Dr. Clark Tardif is an optometry partner at the Specsavers Chinook Center location in Calgary, Alberta. He received his BSc in optometry at Cardiff University. During his career, he's been able to do several volunteer optometric trips to countries like Moldova and Fiji, where eye care isn't always as accessible. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So this may seem like a silly question, but what is vision loss? Vision loss is uh, when a person's eyesight can't be corrected to a normal level with glasses or contact lenses. And what are some of the common types of eye health diseases that might result in vision loss? Uh, Some of the most common ones are cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, um, diabetes is a big one, hypertension or high blood pressure. Um, Genetics play a part for a lot of people. Okay. So what are some of the warning signs of vision loss or causes beyond what you've just explained? It can be quite a few different things. Kind of early signs that a lot of people would notice would be things like blurry vision, uh, glare, trouble adapting to different light levels, especially when it gets dark out. Some people notice changes in their peripheral vision. Um, That's quite common in glaucoma or a common retinal disease called retinitis pigmentosa. When you talk about sort of the inability to shift eyesight when it gets darker uh, and things like that, is that impacted by age? Because I'm getting older and I'm finding it more difficult for my eyes to adjust when it gets dark. To a certain extent, with age, we we typically do experience increased glare levels and and a little bit more trouble adapting to light. But really, a lot of uh, retinal conditions can cause it to a much, much greater effect. Also, and again, I'm not trying to underscore what you're talking about. My experience is some of the new, like headlights, for example, uh, just seem a lot more sharper. Like the LED lights just seem to cast a much harsher light. Is that true or is it time for me to go see my optometrist? Absolutely. A lot of people do find those xenon or halogen headlights do produce a little bit more glare, particularly if they do have an underlying condition such as a cataract, which really makes glare worse at the best of times. Okay. And if we're experiencing some of these symptoms and we're concerned uh, that perhaps we do have a disease that might result in in vision loss, is there anything we can do to prevent it? Uh, Again, depending on the cause of the vision loss, there are quite a few preventative things. Um, Like anything else, a good diet is always crucial. Um, Vitamin A, omega-3, beta-carotene, lutein, zeaxanthin, they're all all different uh, elements and minerals that we like to have for overall eye health. UV protection is another biggie. Um, certain conditions like cataracts are really, really um, aggravated by UV, and they, they do get worse when you have excessive UV exposure. I would imagine that getting an eye exam would be a very good way of determining whether there's underlying issues. Uh, Absolutely. How often should we be getting our eyes checked? Um, For children up to age 19, we recommend coming in annually for an eye exam. Um, Age 19 to 64, every two years, and then those 65 and over, we like to see every year. Um, There are some certain categories of patients, such as diabetics, who we do like to see annually, regardless of their age, or even more frequently, depending on, on their sugar control and so on. But those are kind of the general rules for how frequently we like to have people coming in for eye exams. And how do those exams reveal the underlying health conditions? Like, what is it that you see as a doctor when when you're doing these exams? Um, First and foremost, if we see kind of a decrease in the overall quality of vision, we know that it could be a prescription, but it could also be underlying health issues. 
But the most important thing is to actually look at the health of the eye under the microscope and through an OCT scan, which I'll talk about later. Certain characteristics of blood vessels, for example, can indicate that someone is diabetic or they have high blood pressure, despite them not having any symptoms, such as pain or, or blurry vision. I understand that there's some data, uh, recent data, that's come out from Specsavers and the Canadian Council of the Blind. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, there was actually a fairly large study looking at the eye exam habits of Canadians, and it found that over half of Canadians actually don't know how frequently they should be getting eye exams, and almost 40% of people are aware that they're overdue for an eye exam. Okay, and... If one were to go see an optometrist, what sort of treatments would be available for vision loss? Uh, Depending on the source of vision loss, we have quite a few options. Um, The obvious one being glasses to a certain extent. Um, Certain specialty types of contact lenses can also help. We have low vision aids. There are surgical options in a lot of cases. Um, In a lot of other cases, certain medications such as drops can help. Okay, and how can one improve and maintain their overall eye health? Uh, It kind of comes back to uh, diet again. That's a really important one. UV protection is a huge one for those who are smokers. If you need another reason to quit smoking, that's that's one. Smoking is a really significant uh, risk factor for a lot of different eye health conditions. So my understanding is 75% of vision loss is, is treatable. So when we, throw, when we throw a number like that around, what are we really getting at? It's really just emphasizing the importance of coming in for an eye exam. Even if you think it's a routine eye exam, sometimes that may not be the case. The notorious one is glaucoma. A lot of people assume if they have glaucoma, they're going to be in a lot of pain, having a lot of blurry vision. And that's not really the case at all. Um, in fact, you don't get any symptoms with glaucoma until the disease is starting to get quite advanced. And unfortunately, at that time, it gets a little bit trickier for us to deal with it. You can stop glaucoma's progression then its tracks, but you can't reverse the damage that has already occurred. Okay. And, and you're saying like a routine exam would, would absolutely identify if somebody had glaucoma then. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, that's how glaucoma is picked up for most people. Um, people getting regular eye exams typically don't lose vision because of glaucoma because we are able to, to detect it during an eye exam. Fantastic. Any final thoughts? No, I just want to kind of talk about the importance of, of a regular eye exam. At Specsavers, we're happy to offer what's called optical coherence tomography um, with all of our eye exams, which is basically a 3D scan of the eye, which allows us to see under the surface a little bit better to help us diagnose various different conditions. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Karen Lee, Deb Voorhees, Dr. Rachel Murphy, PhD, Dr. Josephine McMurray, PhD, and Dr. Clark Tardiff. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. 
On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.